Welcome to Postscript. We are transitioning from the main episode, our discussion of Carried Away by Alice Monroe, and now we're going to talk about the final scene in which we seem to have sort of come to <laughs> come to an understanding in the main episode that this is some sort of hallucination that she might be having in the final moments of her life. Maybe she's able to get back to car stairs and has, I'll give her 48 hours, 48 hours to live. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. But that this is, but that she's obviously dying. I don't know if it's, if we're just, uh, taking this for granted or if there's something of the magical realist variety that's going on here where this is an alternate Jack, you know, sort of from an alternate universe that's come into this world in which we've been living. The Jack who doesn't marry Grace at all, right? And who, t- who takes off and doesn't, doesn't marry Grace and also doesn't marry Louisa, right? And who takes off and becomes a different person and lives, lives a different life. I think that maybe the evidence for that reading is the fact that, that this Nancy person who you say you know, m- might be a younger version of Louisa or something, um, that this, this Nancy person is so kind of weirdly fully realized, Jack, Jack's assistant, in this hallucination or alternate universe, right? That she's this character that's sort of fully realized that we never really know who she is or what she's about, but that this alternate universe explanation, right, would give, would give a reason as to why she's such a, I think, an, an individualized character. So I think the evidence for a stroke or hallucination or dying moments is just that she's there to, she's in her 80s and she's there to see a heart specialist. Oh, certainly. I think there's a lot of other pieces of evidence for it, like the fact that she sees a sheep lying on the ground, but it turns into yeah. a dirty white dog, right? So there's already this transformation. Yeah. It's actually a calf, right? That turns into a dog. It says a sheep. Oh. Maybe you have a maybe you have an edited version of the story, an earlier so version I, of the story. Oh, she yeah, she actually apparently she like con- continually is editing her stories, right? Re- rewriting them. I hate when they do that. That's so annoying. I'm looking at the original <laughs> New Yorker one. So on the ground a little way off slept a white calf, which Louisa would not accept, so she squinted at it until it stirred and roused itself. I thought that was, you know, and then it turned into a din- dingy dog. Huh, that's totally different. So th- this has um Behind the first row of chairs, she thought she saw a sheep lying on the ground, but it turned into a dirty white dog, which trotted over and looked at her for a moment in a grave, semi-official way, gave a brief sniff at her shoes, and trotted away. It has the trotting part as a separate sentence. but It's interesting she would not accept it in that earlier version. <laughs> this, is the edi- this must be right. the edited version collected in Open Secrets, which she must have made some edits to the story. I, like I like this earlier version. She would not accept because what is a white calf doing there? And then realize, so this is, you know, as you're saying, this is her confusion at various places. She's very confused and it's, it's evidence of something going on. You know, I had wanted to make something of the calf because it's calf, you know, fatted calf is what you sacrifice right. to the gods. So it becomes a martyr and, and perhaps a symbol of, of Jack. But Yeah, why does the calf become not, a sheep? Yeah, so I don't know, but um, but not incredibly <laughs> important necessarily. But but yeah, I so I don't. I think you know, I it took me a while to figure out what I thought about this, whether it was yeah, magical realism or or a stroke or whatever. In a way, it's it, in a way it doesn't matter. You know, it's it it, it all comes to the same thing <laughs> in the afterlife, right? But. But I was going to say, you know, the, the first evidence that something is going on is just the, the, faint, the faintly sickening, familiar agitation 
which I think the way is the way love is. That, that's when she sits down. She's not feeling well. I think that's the way she's described love at some point in the story. It's been described that way. Similarly, if I'm not making that up. And then going to the bus depot, but it's that's not where the bus took her that morning and, and so on. So did you have more to say, say about that? Or should we? I was going to point us to something else, but what did you want to say? Nothing. I don't think. I'm just, I'm just quickly looking at my notes because I realize I haven't been consulting them all along and I put in a bunch of stuff in here that I wanted to say and now I'm, I, I'm something about love. I think I made a note of in my notes, but I can't find it. Okay. I wait, wait, wait. Give you a sec. Playing a trick on her that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Let's just get into the scene. Sorry. Okay. So I, yeah, I was retaken with this scene where she goes and gets a Coca-Cola out of a dirty little indoor waiting room <laughs> out of a cooler there. Smells like a bad toilet. Um, and so there's a fan set up in the room they used as an office. And she went by on her way outside. Oh, sorry. And as she went by uh, on her way outside, she saw some papers blow off the desk. Oh, shit, said the office girl and stamped her heel on them. Um, it's, little, it's little details like that. Um, so in a way, in a way it's, it's, you know, it, it kind of sums up the whole... <laughs> The whole story, because it, it something about the wind, right, which is previously associated with what happens with Arthur, you know, the initial getting together with Arthur, and the attempt to control that and not let the papers get carried away by stamping one's heel on them. That kind of conflict, yeah. So you get, I, I think, what happens is in some of these details, they're they're very dreamlike amalgams or. Um, What's the word? Condensations. They're very dreamlike condensations of the emotional import of the story. I think that's what gives it such an effect. And you get this, this type of thing is repeated over and over again. And it, it, but it's not just straightforwardly symbolic, right? Not heavily, mm-hmm. heavy handedly symbolic. It's just what happens in life. And it, and it, but the way the details are arranged, they, they build up ones at a, ver- at a very deep, visceral level ones emotional response to everything that's been going on. Because I, I think in the previous sections of the story, for me, there's not as a strong an emotional response, right? Every, everything really comes together in this final section. So, so, and ironically, the previous sections are all more explicit, right? They're plotted. It's a plotted love story or, or series of love stories. So you would think that you would think that that explicitness would lead to a greater emotional response. Like, so for instance, Jack's death. I mean, there's a sadness to him, not to him falling off the radar. Right. But it's nothing like the sadness that we get here in the end, which is all these events that are very, now they're not very oblique because obviously she's fantasizing Jack and he's talking to her, but you know what I mean? Um, some, some of the details that really hammer home the emotional significance of everything that's happened. Yeah, I think I agree with you, though. I think that there are other moments that come close to this for me. Of course, the description, the sort of after the fact description, I think the the ways in which things are being told out of order means that when we mm-hmm. finally get the description of Arthur going into the factory and seeing the blood on the sawdust and uh, the, the head being carried... That, of course, is a high, high, high point for me of emotion. Also, I was very, very affected by Louisa talking about hating Sundays and when she's sick 
with the flu, all she could think about is going back and opening up the library. You know, there's a tremendous, there's a tremendous amount of pathos in that for me. Yeah, I think I over overstated that. Yeah, but. no, and and also just the no, I'm just thinking of the other emotional high high points. It's interesting to kind of go back over them because uh, that is that was one for me, and also the scene when she sleeps with Jim uh, and the bed is carrying her off, seems to be carrying her off, and then the the really romantic um, proposal scene between. Arthur and Louisa. I think the shock that it becomes a proposal scene because you're not sure where it's going, you know, and she's not sure where it's going. She laughs and thinks that, you know, she says, "Yeah, I'm saying just suddenly I wish we could get married. It's, yeah. It's yeah. Quite, quite she, she thinks she, she, she laughs and then she says, Oh, sorry. I was just thinking to myself that I was never going to see you again. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, but yeah, but this, this does have a tremendous amount of pathos. And yet what I'm interested in, you point out earlier that he, he says love never dies and and she thinks to herself, you know, oh, this is what all his speech making has turned him into. Earlier than that, he says, I always meant to break the ice about how he wanted to come in and talk to her in the library. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think it's very funny that in her hallucination, she sort of, she reduces his speech to something a bit trite. And I think that it's interesting that after her, it's a hallucination. It's not a, it's not a fantasy over which she maybe has more directorial control, right? But I I think in thinking about the pathos of this moment and then thinking about how much real, you know, psychological torment she was under waiting for him to come into the library and then getting that note from him and her her own photograph put onto her, her desk, shoved under the blotter. And then to have it all come down to this hallucination saying, oh, I always meant to break the ice. Like, like you know, like there was some sort of, I'm just really interested in that. Like there was some sort of standoff, you know, between them. Like ice implies that there was, oh, they, it was just a bit awkward or something. Or, oh, he always meant to just broach the subject with her or get to know her better, you know. And, and um, the way in which that kind of twists the reality of the situation or makes it, turns it into something trite that he he just had to you know, come over and start talking to her and then they would have been acquaintances, you know? Um, mm, it's mm. a really interesting turning on its head. And I'm wondering about that, that ice, as you say, the, I love the connection you make between the, the fan and the wind blowing when Arthur and Louisa get together. I'm wondering too about the breaking the ice. Maybe I'm making too much of this. And the fact that the final, the actual final scene of the novel, of this story rather, is the, you know, what should be the first scene of the story, right? It's when she first comes into the town and it's a winter scene. Um, she sees the, the town in, in winter and... So it's, it's really about a new, a new start is what the ending is about, this concept of a new start. And right. There's no, I was just looking to see if there was any ice in this last scene. There isn't. There's snow though. There's snow in There's snow, yeah. the horses. But anyway, um, I'm being a little too literal with this breaking the ice thing, but, uh, or maybe I'm not, I don't know, a thawing of relations between them that never, that never came to be. But uh, anyway, I, I just, I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting too, that he attributes this love never dies to his father who would never say such a thing. I don't think. Wait, she attributes yeah. that ja- no, to Jack, the father? Attributes it to his father, right. Uh, yeah. Right. And Jack would never, uh, Jack's father would never say that. Um, right. Right. He's the one who misses the funeral and is fishing. and <laughs> Yeah. To fish on the day of the funeral. That's another, that's another interesting moment when he, comes across a woman walking uh, and we know that it's Louisa and her arms whipping, are whipping the air. Whipping the air, yeah. 
Um, Jeez, there's so many great details in the story. Yeah. Anyway, I don't, I don't know what to make of that, except that her, what? That her, like I said, you know, she doesn't have control necessarily over what she's hallucinating, but the hallucination, maybe what it reveals, just thinking about this now, is um, a sort of softening of the injury he did to her, uh, which is the result of the fact that she's actually gone on to live a full life. Mm-hmm. after this experience, right? So that only someone who has gone on to have a happy life and had a, had a happy marriage and a son and, and a, a place in the town and, and all of the sort of uh, hallmarks of normalcy to which it turns out that Louisa aspired or maybe she didn't know she aspired to or maybe she just decided that she aspired to, that only after all of that can we get this hallucination that says, gee, I always meant to break the ice, you know? That <laughs> um, maybe maybe it's, a, it's evidence, obviously not of... Uh, the significance, um, a, a real reflection of the significance of what happened to her, but actually a softening of Louisa over the years in relation to how deeply that hurt her. Right. Yeah. I think it sounds, yeah, I think, yeah. Did you want to say more? I think that that sounds right to me. And it's, it's as if she's mourning, she's finally mourning the whole relationship, but, but in a way that mourning is kind of a reaffirmation of so I think some of it represents a wish about, there's a lot of dreamlike, there's a dreamlike quality to all of this. So it could even be, you know, she's passed out having a dream, but, and that, that even shows up in her trying to find the bus depot and it's not there. Right. And she has to go somewhere else. It's such a dreamlike thing where you're trying to do something, but you can't, you're trying to accomplish something, but, but, but it just never happens within the dream. At least I have a lot of dreams like that. So, and then it's, it's some weird detail, like, that oh actually the bus depot isn't is you know is being rebuilt and it's somewhere else and then she goes to some house which I don't think is really the bus deep, depot and two guys are sitting there and and but she assumes it is you know so she's like oh they're not very hard workers <laughs> so they're just sitting on their porch but what I was going to say about this so I I think you could see some of this whether it's a dream or a hallucination as representative of the wish that Jack not be whatever idealized version of of him that she might have had at some point, right? So she turns him into a dandy for some reason. He's a union organizer and speaker, mm-hmm. but also a dandy. And because he's a, do you remember that part? She's like, he's he's dressed in a dandy style. And he, and, you know, he's a political activist and speaker, but on the other hand, his, so that there's some kind of status to that, but on the other hand, it's made him a bit superficial. He's willing to say things like that are obviously false, right? And and reflect an unfamiliarity with what love actually is and what it's like. Love never dies. Well, she knows, you know, she's had a life lifetime of experience of what love is and, and different incarnations and different varieties. And she knows what it's like to whatever happens to love over the course of a long marriage, she knows what that is like as well. And that's where she makes her remark about wanting to marry and get into a normal life. But, and so, and, and then when he just vanishes, right? So there's a recapitulation of his vanishing early in the story. Um, she'll make that remark about him being a traitor, helplessly, a traitor, helplessly, a traveler, which is to say, you know, he's carried away once again, uh, the carrying away being his his vanishing, and he he can't 
um, unlike her who got into a normal life, he can't help but keep getting carried away and and betraying her in that sense, leaving, traveling, not settling down. I like what you're saying about about this idea of his if this um alternate universe, you know, or or even the right the this uh it doesn't have to be an alternate universe. It could be in her own mind, right? That he's sort of lived on, that maybe this is his, her sort of wish for him that he could have gotten out of the situation of entanglement from both women and and gone on to do something with himself as a result of her, you know, her, her librarian <laughs> services, right? That she's provided for him. I, I I like the idea that that kind of solves the problem of the idealization on her part maybe um i like how this this scene splinters in a lot of different directions so that he could be representative of and also therefore sort of kind of resolve um the various difficulties that she's had in her life like his his backside in in a particularly funny moment reminds her of jim <laughs> right um right so right. he so he might Flat. be taking on yeah so he might be taking on and therefore um symbolically sort of resolving Right, the the qualities of men by whom she's been badly treated, and um, you know, badly treated in a in a sort of manner of speaking, or or like badly treated spiritually, it seems. And uh, so that, well, I, I wanted to say a couple things about that. That in response to his sort of dandyish looks, she actually thinks about Arthur, and that she prefers the way Arthur looks. Um, right. She, she preferred the kind of looks yeah. Arthur had, the restraint, oh, the yeah. dark suited dignity. That, yeah. yeah. Um, that some people would call pompous that seemed to her admirable and innocent. I think that's really sweet. And also that this idea that she continues to talk to Arthur in her head, she's, she describes herself as she gets older as becoming more practical and talking to him about practical things <laughs> that the fact that she talks to him in her head is not mystical, but it's sort of deeply practical. And, um, and so obviously like the, the love with Arthur has been real and uh, you know that she's actually um become habituated to him and his looks in in a way that even this hallucination this sort of fantasy of jack it doesn't live up to the real life looks of her husband you know so so there's something kind of satisfying about that and about the fact that right that she has obviously had this long-term much healthier kind of love for arthur that that too seems to be something that is sort of resolved in this final scene that she sees Jack in her mind's eye. Granted, it's a hallucination, right? But she sees him and prefers Arthur. But then in the end, you know, after she sees uh, his backside and remarks that it looks like Jim, um, she's this this idea of the trick being played on her returns, right? Which she says to Jim, and maybe the, maybe seeing Jim reminds her of telling this story to Jim earlier when she says, you know, was Jack playing a trick on me with these letters? The sight of Jim's backside makes her say to herself, oh, what kind of a trick was being played on her? Or what kind of trick was she playing on herself? She would not have it. She pulled herself up tightly. She saw all those black clothes melt into a puddle. This is the the moving mass of black clothes that's coming towards her and that turns out to be Mm. Mennonites. She was dizzy and humiliated. She would not have it. And but then that's resolved by the by the Mennonites who give her the the butterscotch candy and she's she's sort of restored. It allows that taste to promise her some reasonable continuance, which seems which suggests that she thinks she's dying and that but that but if she can 
you know, if she can still enjoy a butterscotch, she's going to last a little bit longer at least. There's even the suggestion there that maybe she's like diabetic or something and that having the the candy like just makes her like physically revives her a little. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch, but you know, like that she just needs maybe sugar. It's just her blood sugar is low. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that yeah. there's a lot of, you know, I mean, I think there are physical problems going on that are occasioning the hallucination and that's, that's something that is, is in the text. But, um, but I, I just am wondering about that trick idea that um, a lot of things seem to be resolved. And at the same time, what, it, it gives it so much poignancy that Louisa still feels herself to be the subject or the object of a of of some trick being played on her that I think like um, there's still some fundamental sadness there that something that happens to her that she, she might be the butt of somebody's joke and I think that's what makes it no I think I was just going to say I think that's that's what makes it poignant yeah yeah this idea of the trick comes up several times I think the first time is when she's telling Jack a story in her letter about the heat and the lack of water, right? Or the low, oh, yes. I wanted to mention that. <clears throat> low level of the river. <laughs> and Yeah. And she tells the story of uh, the minister who goes out and to pray for, to pray for rain, basically, in a, in a small rowboat on the river. And then, but it sinks and he's basically left ironically standing into water that only reaches his waist. Um, and then the question is, was it an accident or a malicious trick? Um, and this, so the, the talk, the talk was all that his prayers were, were answered, but from the wrong direction. Right. <laughs> right. So he's praying for water and then he ends up in the water, but it's yeah, still low, but, but the, so the accident versus the trick that, the section where she gets together with with Arthur, it's called accidents. And the the two accidents are Jack getting killed and then her getting with with Arthur via via that. You know, they bond over that, so to speak. <laughs> um Well, there are th- And anyway, and then, you know, and then Fraley says tricks are more more, you know, she's asking Tra- Fraley if he was it a joke? And Fraley's like, tricks are more likely to be indulged in by by women. So so now the, is it, it's not Fraley, it's Frary. Is it Fraley or Frary? Frary. Shit, I've been saying Fraley the whole time. That's okay. I rarely noticed. Uh, so anyway, she says to Frary, I mean, sorry, no, that, that right after she, in her hallucination, she's, she's reminded of Frary and then the word trick comes up again. So this is another thing with Monroe, this sort of free association effect, right? You get a, you get an association something that's connected previously in the story, but not obviously, or, or it's, you know, she, she's obviously associating from one thing to another, but it's, it's, you have to look in, in the, in the story to see what, what's grounding the association, but it's there in the previous part of the story. So anyway, what kind of trick was being played on her or what kind of trick was she playing on herself? She would not have it. So, and maybe that's a, yeah, I don't, I don't know why that's the wake up there where she's, you know, where she's, she seems to be aware that none of this is real. I, there are other hints earlier than that, that it's not real, but, but you know what I mean? Anyway, sorry. I think you wanted to say more about this trick thing as well, but. No, well, yeah, you're reminding me of a philosophy class I took in at grad school at Florida, where we talked about the difference between an accident and a mistake, actually in relationship to film. And I think it was Wittgenstein had, had some, something in maybe in the blue books about 
accidents versus mistakes. But I'm thinking about the difference between a trick and an accident. The, the third accident in that section is when Lily and Jack's daughter pees her pants. She has an accident. And uh, I'm thinking about a, a, a sort of vector of, you know, a trick has some sort of mind of its own. It has some sort of, you know, intent behind it, whereas an accident is something that can't be controlled, that has no, well, however you want to put it, cognition of its own, if you will. And so I'm thinking about that. And Yeah, it's about whether there's something, there's an intention behind something. Right. And I'm thinking about that in relationship to the, the dichotomy you, you presented at the beginning of the episode of free will versus determinism or... Mm-hmm animal versus machine, right? That, uh, that Arthur sets up where the free, free will and, and the animal are both related to the trick. And I'm wondering if the animal that she sees at the end, right, whether it be a calf or a sheep that turns into a dog, as that presages the hallucination that she's going to have, I just, I wonder about that. I wonder, you know, I mean, is there a malignant reading of this story in which she's party to <laughs> a sort of matrix in which, right? Or yeah, or, or something, right? I'm being facetious, but, uh, you know, but I think that, what am I trying to say? The extent to which intention and one's, you know, one's, one's intention and one's behavior and the way that the recipient of that behavior receives that behavior, right? An accident can turn into a trick, right? So, Jack obviously did not mean to hurt Louisa, right? But she she receives it. She experiences that I think as a trick, and I think it's important. It's important that she experiences it that way. Well, and then what Frary says, right, is that there's something in between an accident and a trick, and that's being carried away. So right, and it's, the, it's intentional and not intentional at the same time. There's such a thing as this is what makes human beings so complicated. We're not just we don't just have spirits or souls and whatever you want to call it. And free will, we have, we, we are also machines. We are also natural embodied beings. We are also driven, we are also driven by deterministic hmm. forces, but somewhere in between conscious free will or agency and biological drivenness, machinery, determinism, there is this in between realm of the carried away where hmm. it's not intentional, right? He doesn't mean to, to hurt her. But at the same time, he's, you know, or maybe at some level he does, right? But maybe at some unconscious level, there's, there's aggression and it, and it is a trick at an un- unconscious sure. level. But, um, but, it's, um, but it's just reflective of this willingness to go into a world of fantasy and have that fantasy dominate reality, which is why trick is, is not a bad word for what she's experiencing at that, that point. Hmm. In Jack's case, the fantasy is, here's this woman, she's a librarian, she's connected to these books and my educational aspirations, and I'm in love with her and I'm going to tell her that in a letter, even though I know I can't be with her because I'm engaged and probably I'm just going to die in the war anyway, so, 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 so what? It's no, no problem for me to for me to do this. It's careless, right? It's careless. It's being carried away, but it's not. And, and so in some sense it is trickery. There's deception in it. Obviously he's de- deceiving her. There's without a doubt. So anyway, so, so he's in that in-between realm in, in, in somewhere in between trickery and accident. And she in this playing a trick on herself and, and this other form of getting carried away, this other form of allowing fantasy to 
but as you point out, fantasy isn't quite the right word, but just use it. Allowing fantasy to, to dominate reality at this particular point could be described as playing a trick on herself. But I think, um, I think this falls more square, you know, it falls more squarely into, into <laughs> the explanation of something that's biologically determined, right? As we've described, whether it's stroke or blood sugar or, you know, dying. But, but on the other hand, it's revealing. It's, it's not, it's not a random hallucination. It's connected to her desires, her wishes, her, and, and it's doing this, as you said, this, this psychological work for her, which I think has something to do with mourning and coming to, to understand the significance of, of these men in her, in her life. And the way that, the way that entered into her, her last relationship with, with Arthur, what that, uh, in a way, try, it's her figuring out what that relationship meant. So it's, it's fantasy or hallucination, but it, it, it doesn't, it no longer serves the purpose of carelessness or trickery. It serves the purpose of resolution and, and actually figuring something out. So, right. Her, like the minister standing in the water, you know, her prayers were answered, but at the wrong end. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I, I like that a lot. I think to what, what you're talking about, Jack's sort of unconscious or, you know, uh, trickery. I like the idea of the, the fact that their letters and the first section of the story is called letters, right? The fact that the consequences of his actions are literally sort of carried away from him, you know, by, by the male. In a way, I wonder if that's, you know, the male is a similar sort of uh, instrument, um, unintentional trickery, that maybe the, yeah. li- the library is, you know, that Louisa is allowing people to be carried away, you know, to carry away these ideas out of the library. And, um, and by, by that same token, right, the, the ideas uh, in Jack's letters and Louisa's letters are, are carried away from them overseas through the mail, right? Uh, more, on, more on Jack's side is, is the, um, you know, the carrying away of his consequences away from him, you know, he is more to be, to the extent that he can be faulted, right, which is uh, difficult to say, right, he is more to be faulted because he's the one who strikes up this correspondence in the first place and who, who doesn't follow through on anything. Um, well, it's, yeah. Right, but I wonder about those, those two sort of organisms or, or organs rather of society in which like the wheels turn and right. And they're sort of like deterministic in this way that you're talking about, like the male just car- carries things off away from us. And we don't have to live with the consequences of what we've written in a letter because it's gone from us. And if that- It's easier to seduce and abandon from a distance. Sorry, were you not done? Yeah, it's easier to seduce and abandon from a distance than to do it when you are up close. And, and it's also easier to idealize and- create a romantic fantasy of a person and she's never even seen him. And he's just seen that picture where she didn't, she wasn't even able to dress in the modest fashion that she was hoping <laughs> the, the unassuming, unpretentious. Yeah. He's also seen her from afar and that wonderful description of her hair being wet. Right. So obviously he's, you know, the reason why he writes to her in the first place is because he's seen her in the library, but uh, I oh, wonder. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's Yeah. I wonder if the unconscious aggression that you're talking about that uh, Jack might be operating under is a result of the totally un- unintentional um, idea that Louisa is just the arm of the 
library, which has allowed Jack to become carried away with the ideas that he's been carried away with, right? So she's a cog in the library's sort of machine of 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 uh, education, right? Um, and that uh, there might be some aggression there as a as a result, unconscious aggression as a result of the fact that uh, Louisa has been the means by which he has been filled up with ideas that cannot be realized. On, on on multiple levels, including romantic. Right. So she's she's seduced him in a way. Um, she's tricked him with the with the books. I love, by the way, just as an aside, I love kind of the first romantic, really genuinely romantic thing he says. He went over and stood by the radiator and shook your hair on it, and the water sizzled like grease in the frying pan. I was sitting reading in the Illustrated London News about the war. We exchanged a smile. I didn't mean to say your hair, and then and then in parentheses, right? I didn't mean to say your hair was greasy when I wrote that. It's cute, which is cute. But and I thought, you know, today we could just go go back and revise or delete that line. Of course, he could have just crossed it out, but you know, it would be be different. But it's interesting what letters, you know, what letters do, what they what they can commit us to in a way that we're not as committed to in a digital, more revisable age right so it's easier to get carried away in a way uh but anyway the sizzling <laughs> sizzling is great it reminds me of like flash dance or something but <laughs> librarian version but i also wanted to say before we stop which is probably gonna have to be soon because i gotta run but we i just the very ending is really interesting partly because we, we've already described it begins with this idea of a new start which would have seem to have belonged at the at the very beginning of the story but then it's it's an odd reflection on it's a winter and it's going to transition to spring and she hasn't seen spring in this town yet and um she'll uh what was i going to say she'll well she's looking at the trees the bare trees and she's thinking so much that lay she's thinking that She's never been here when there are leaves on the trees. That's what she's thinking. And then she says, so much that lay open would now be concealed, which is a, you know, in a way it's a reversal of what we would think of as the typical epiphany, right? Where things become clear. It's almost like she's having a reverse epiphany at the very end and that there's something important in concealment. And then there's the other, the other idea here is, you know, there are sleighs moving through the town and then, quote, somewhere out in the country, they would lose the sound of each other's bells, unquote, which I think, you know, has something to do with the way time affects love, I think, and the way um, people, for instance, can drift apart. There's probably, there's probably a more interesting reading of that, right? Love travels in a way and the, the, the sleighs of, you know, affection move away from each other. I don't know. Mm. But but what I was also going to say is is the, the the sense of renewal in that is just that the you know like the more a more stable version of love is built on these these sa- earlier sacrifices of the more idealized version of love perhaps so concealment in a way is is better than everything just laying laying open and being unadorned or uh, naked let's say I don't know how else to put that but. I like that a lot. The blinkered horses as well are a great image of just, uh, you know, the idea of, um, yeah, willful concealment. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So again, I think of this as the laying open in a way is more like the the kind of being carried away and uh, being um, sort of in ecstatic mode with love. 
And then the concealment is is more more grounding, and there's a real person there, flesh and blood on them. And well, my favorite um, line. And then we mourn, we mourn, and and it's it's you know it's premised and grounded in the mourning of this again, this more idealized version. I might be repeating that idea too many times, but that's that's my conclusion. But yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? My favorite line, maybe in the whole story, is. Um the penultimate paragraph. She was glad of a fresh start. Her spirits were hushed and grateful. She had made fresh starts before and things had not turned out as she had hoped, but she believed in the swift decision, the unforeseen intervention, the uniqueness of her fate. Of course, you know, the, the unforeseen part of that, it, it speaks, I think, to this blinkered quality that you're, you're talking about where concealment is, is actually um, a good thing, but this involves like a, like a, a, a leap of faith or even, um, as you suggested earlier, maybe like a, playing a trick on herself. Of course, there's the the the, the chime too with the fact that the, you know the the swift decision of the machine, or you know, or or the the the, the swiftness of of um, of fate might mean decapitation, right? Um, uh, but here it means like um, the the opposite of a trick. You know, the idea that jumping into something. Yes, you could get your cut, your head cut off, right? Uh, but you could also get what's the opposite of a trick? A treat. <laughs> you could also have <laughs> a butterscotch. There you go, a butterscotch. A Mennonite person a can hand you a butterscotch. Promise of reasonable continuance. Yeah. Or, or luck, good luck, right? Instead of bad luck. Um, and she's willing to make that leap. And I think you know what I really like about what you've what you've talked about with Jack is that he he wasn't willing to do that, and so maybe that means that um, she you know this is a sign that um, as you say like like in the end all all will kind of work itself out. The, this leap into the unknown that she's made will end up actually kind of paying off um, in spite of everything that happens in between. Shall we call it? Let's call it time of death okay. two sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you.